Welcome to Yet Even Now on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. The following teachings through the book of Joel came out of preparation for the 2020 Yet Even Now conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus. We are overjoyed to be able to share these teachings prepared for this conference recorded in the fall of 2020. Study along with us through the book of Joel using the Yet Even Now Companion Guide found at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com. We pray these teachings will bless you as you hear from the Lord through the prophet Joel. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash donate. Hello, my name's Mandy, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to be part of this Joel Yet Even Now conference turned audio recording. Um, I've been humbled and amazed by God and His Word throughout this whole process, and I'm so glad that I get to share what I've learned with you, even though we were super disappointed when the conference had to be postponed and then canceled. I'm just grateful for technology and that there's a way I'm able to teach to you today. I am not speaking based on my own authority or qualifications. I am not a Bible scholar by profession. I'm a physical therapist and a mama, so I am all about using clear, simple instructions. My style prefers black and white, give me a list of steps. So interpreting the poetic meanings and the prophecy in Joel is not something that's in my comfort zone. I also don't have years of experience teaching the Bible. I didn't even go to Cedarville. But I firmly believe that God equips those he calls. If you are newer to studying your Bible or teaching it to others, please be encouraged that God will equip us to understand it. Number one, the study tools that we have that Dayton Women in the Word has prepared and um, posted videos are all excellent, and I would highly recommend that you use them. But God reminded me as I prepared that if I rely on my own abilities or resources or my plan to dedicate a certain number of hours to figure it all out, I will still fall short. God showed me, reminded me, the importance of submitting my Bible studying time to Him and praying for the Holy Spirit's guidance. So don't let anything that you learn today replace asking the Holy Spirit to teach you from His Word. So let's all start by doing that right now, and I'll pray for us. God, open our eyes that we will behold wondrous things out of your law, as it says in Psalm 119. Open our minds and our hearts that we will hear from you and receive exactly what you want today, God. Guide my words so that your truth would be made known. In Jesus' name, amen.
Before we dig in, let's review briefly, or if you haven't listened to the previous uh, sections on Joel, to let you know where we've been. I will be covering Joel chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible while I review a little bit. Up until this point, we've covered chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, which have been all about what? God's judgment in the form of a locust infestation and drought, and his call for the people to return and submit to the Lord. Now we're in the second half of chapter 2, which is God's response to the prayer um, for the people to return. And this tells us what happens now, kind of the now what, after the people repent. So this is a huge turning point in the book. Our main idea for this section is when we repent, the Lord Yahweh restores and dwells in relationship with us so that God will be glorified. I'll say that again. When we repent, the Lord Yahweh restores and dwells in relationship with us so that God will be glorified. Let's read the first section, verses 18 through 27, and I'll read out of the ESV translation. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise. For he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. I'll cover two points here. Number one, God restores the people's reputation, their land, and their joy. And number two, God reveals his character. Point number one, we see that God restores. God didn't have to have mercy on the people. They deserved punishment for their sins. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, it said they are to cry out, spare your people. How many times did the Israelites deserve punishment throughout their history in the Old Testament? But God continued to pursue them 
and chose to show them mercy. And he does this for us too, right? This is hard for us to face, but we've done nothing to deserve God's mercy. He would be perfectly fair if at any point he chose to wipe them out or strike me down and just start over with new humans. He's the all-powerful God. He could do that, right? But he doesn't because our God is merciful. So how do we wrap our head around the way that God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful? The whole Bible is the story of God redeeming his people, accepting a sacrifice to wipe away the debt of sin. The best parallel I can come up with to try to explain this is Jesus' death on the cross. We are all sinners and deserve separation from God because of our sin for eternity, but God so loved us with abounding love and grace that he made a way, sent his only son to die as the sacrifice for our sins and to restore us to right relationship with him. Perfect justice and perfect mercy in Jesus' death on the cross. Let's keep going looking in verse 19. In verse 19, the Lord answered The ESV Study Bible points out the fact that he answered their prayers of repentance means that he listened and heard them. Ladies, we don't have to wonder if our God hears our prayers and if he listens and cares about every word and everything about us. In verse 19, when God starts speaking, he starts with the word behold, which translates look or see particularly to see what follows it. Now, this is not a word that we use very often in our language today, so it's easy to rush on past it, but it's used in the Bible often before something unexpected or miraculous happens, like when the angel of the Lord announced the birth of Jesus and when the temple curtain was torn in two at the time of Jesus' death. So this should really get our attention, like a giant, don't miss this, Or what do you know? Flashing right before whatever comes after it. If you can't tell by my voice, I was born and raised in the South. And one of my favorite uh, wonderful pastor at a previous church when I lived in Alabama taught us that we have a Southern expression that is pretty similar to this word, behold. And it's, I'll be doggone. For example, well, I'll be doggone if four different people didn't bring banana pudding to the church potluck. So I tell you this not to belittle any of these major events that happen after the beholds in the Bible, because they're significant, but I just wanted to share this so that when you see that word behold, maybe you'll remember my silly saying and remember, I'll be doggone and pay attention to what's coming next. So verse 19, behold, don't miss this. God is restoring a lot of different things. First, their reputation among the nations which carried a lot more weight in their time and culture than it does in ours today. We see the reference to the northerner that God will remove probably refers to the fact that most of Judah's literal enemies were coming from the north of their country. The vanguard is a military term meaning the first soldiers in an advancing army, and the rear guard means the soldiers at the back of the army. The eastern sea was the Dead Sea to the east of Judah, And the Western Sea was the Mediterranean Sea. So the point of all this military and geography language 
is to show us a complete driving out of the people's attackers so that all that is left of them is the stench and foul smell, meaning of their dead bodies. So this is such a dramatic work that other nations and the people's enemies will see that God did this. Next, we see God restoring the land. There's a picture of their physical needs being met with crops and trees growing, rain coming down, things that are essential to survival in a society that depended on agriculture for their day-to-day sustenance. Now, we don't often think about water or food scarcity here in the U.S., thankfully, unless, of course, you searched for toilet paper or Clorox wipes sometime in 2020. Most of the time, we don't think about our agriculture supply. If you've ever been involved in a natural disaster or spent time in a developing country, it can make us completely rethink how we use water for everything. Water would have been a life and death need in this time. Remember the list of things that dried up in chapter one from lack of water? Now God pours out abundant rain, just like he gives us Jesus as a gift of living water so that we will never thirst again in John 4. Listen to some of these specific descriptions. In verse 23, he has poured down for you abundant rain. Verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. In the first part of verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So God is not just giving them enough to survive, but blessing them abundantly. This echoes what we heard about God's nature earlier in Joel 2.13 and throughout the Old Testament, where it says God is abounding in steadfast love. This idea of abundance is linked to the word satisfied that's used a couple times through this section. And it's translated from the Hebrew root word savah. Savah, which means to fill to satisfaction, to have plenty of. And it's often used in the Old Testament to refer to physical food, such as the manna in Exodus. And when Jesus fed the great multitude or fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, where it says they all had their fill and had basketfuls left over. That's that same savah, satisfied, to have plenty. It's also used figuratively in Psalm 63, verse 5. When he's remembering God, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So think about that feeling when our bodies have had as much as we want to eat, like the sometimes uncomfortable full feeling after the Thanksgiving feast. That is the fullness that God gives us for our soul when he satisfies us. There's another interesting word in verse 22, and in NIV translation, it's the verb phrase for becoming green, and it's from a Hebrew word that's only used one other place in the Bible, which I thought was interesting, and that's in Genesis 1, verse 11, describing the Garden of Eden, which we know was perfect and a picture of completion. So Joel wants us to think about this amazing restoration after God acts, being like the completeness in the Garden of Eden. 
we see this again, um, this idea of foreshadowing to Jesus, who made a way for us to be restored by grace through faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I want to point out a word in verse 25 that I missed at first. God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The years. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a widely published preacher and theologian from the 1800s, who said it better than I can. It will strike you at once that the locusts did not eat the years. The locusts ate the fruit of the year's labor, the harvests of the fields. So the meaning of the restoration of the years must be the restoration of those fruits and of those harvests which the locusts consumed. You cannot have back your time, but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. End quote. God can pay back even the time and progress that was lost during the time of the punishment here in Joel. If you have any wasted years or blessings in your past, or if you're in a season where you don't see fruitfulness happening, know that God gives us his grace instead of regret. The third area that we see God restore is their joy. In verse 23, he says, Be glad, O children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. The word rejoice here comes from a Hebrew root word, gil, which means to be glad, to be joyful, and has an older meaning um, of to spin round under the influence of emotion. Joy, like spinning around under the influence of emotion. So if you've ever watched a toddler spinning until they get so dizzy that they fall down or bump into someone, like my son does sometimes, you know that they do not have a care in the world besides that feeling of the joy of that dizzy spinning, regardless of what he's going to run into. And he's usually tilting his head and looking straight up for some reason. Isn't that the same way for us, that if our focus is on God, that should be the root of our joy and our focus, um, regardless of what's going on in the craziness of the world around us. So this joy is not the same as happiness over temporary material provisions that God blesses us with, like a hashtag rejoice photo on Instagram of our overflowing wine and fruit. No, God is telling them to rejoice in the Lord. Gladness in God is deeper than that because the purpose of that rejoicing is to turn our hearts back to God in thankfulness and praise. So what about when our circumstances don't look so restored? The same root word for rejoice is used in the book of Habakkuk, which is another fabulous minor prophet book that you should all find in your Old Testament and read um, because it teaches a powerful message about rejoicing in good times and bad because our satisfaction, that savah, 
comes from God, not our circumstances. So if you would, please turn to the book of Habakkuk and mark it with a post-it in your Bible for you to come back to later. In chapter 3, I'll paraphrase, Habakkuk says in verses 17 through 19, Even if all the crops fail and there's nothing to eat, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even when our circumstances, like all the uncertainties of this past year, or whether you're dealing with a physical illness or a family relationship that's a challenge, we can trust that our God is the source of our satisfaction and our joy, no matter what. So to summarize this section so far, God is merciful and listens to the repentance of his people. He removes their devastation and satisfies all their needs so that he will be glorified. Next, point number two, God reveals his character. Let's read verse 27 again slowly because we will camp out here for a little bit. Verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Wow. The Hebrew root word for know is yada. Yada. And it means to know without any doubt. This occurs 957 times in the ESV translation of the Bible. So we know this must be important, right? Another definition is to know by experiencing. As soon as I read that, I immediately thought of a time in my life when I felt an experienced God without a doubt. And that was in 2013 when my mom was sick and died from some stomach cancer. She was diagnosed when it was already stage four, and we were basically told there were no curative treatment options. So my mom and my family and I dealt with a few months of her having miserable symptoms as her physical health just continued to deteriorate. But as terrible as that whole physical process was and how unexpected it was to lose her when she was only 55, God was so good to us through it all. He worked out the details of allowing my brother and I to be there to help my dad in her day-to-day care and orchestrated everything down to having just the right family members present in the room when we all held hands and prayed as she took her last peaceful breaths. As awful as all that was, God gave me, and I know to my mom as well, a peace that comforted me in a way that I had never felt so clearly before. The only way I could explain was that I knew Yada, that God was with us and in control. God desires for us to know him and his presence, and he can use good and bad circumstances to draw us closer to himself. I knew God more fully after that experience, just as the people here in Joel, who experienced the loss of the food and the ability to sacrifice to their God, they had a different understanding of him after he restored things back to them. So what does God want us to know, yada, without a doubt about him here? 
there are a few phrases I want to break down. First, he wants us to know that I am in the midst of Israel. The word for in the midst here is kerev, which is Hebrew meaning the innermost parts or among. It's used uh, some places in the Old Testament referring to the internal organs of animals during sacrifices. So we're talking the deepest core of our being. The phrase is used in Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28, talking about the people of Israel, when God says, I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He doesn't want to be a distant God who stays in heaven as if he's too holy to look down on us. No, the all-powerful, all-present God of the universe desires for us to know him and his presence. He wants an intimate relationship with us. God didn't just develop a plan to rescue us from sin and hell and give us an option to survive, right? The whole story of the Bible is not just man sinned and then part B, now God sends Jesus to pay our penalty. If we look at it that way and think, I've checked my box. I have my receipt from this transaction that happened. I'm good to go. We are missing out on the joy and satisfaction that only comes from experiencing God's presence. Through his abundant grace and mercy, God chooses to dwell within us. He restores us to an even better condition than what we can imagine. And he designed it this way on purpose. Sending Jesus was not his plan B to fix things after humanity sinned and ruined everything. He wanted to come to us and fill our kerev, our innermost being, and dwell with us. The next line in verse 27 says he wants us to know that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. When we see the word Lord written like this in all capital letters, it is an attempt to translate into English the Hebrew word Yahweh, and this is the covenant name of God. It's only used in the Bible in places where God is relating to his people. In the Jewish tradition, the name was considered so holy that they would not even pronounce it out loud. So what does this mean? The covenant name of God refers to the agreement or guarantee that he made when he first established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis. And I'll read from Genesis 17 in verse 7. The Lord said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Again, in Exodus, when he told Moses in the burning bush, my name is I am, he told them to tell the Egyptians that the Lord Yahweh is who sends you. I am is the self-existing, completely sufficient God, but he wants to be in covenant relationship with his people. I tend to think of this as an Old Testament type name, but really it is so much more. Yahweh is faithful to his people through the whole story of the Bible. 
from creation to fall to redemption through Jesus to our ultimate restoration. One commentator, Hubbard, points out that this covenant name of God, Yahweh, is used seven times in the book of Joel, which should perk up our interest for that number seven to appear. Look how it's used in describing God's holiness in chapter 1, verse 1, reflecting the creation part. Then again for the call to return in chapter 2, verses 12 and 17. So there's the fall aspect. Used again in the instruction to rejoice in 2.23. So there's our redemption through Christ. And again, when it covers to know him in 2 verse 27, there's redemption again. And communing with him in eternity in several places in chapter 3. That's the restoration aspect. So throughout the whole book of Joel, throughout the whole story of the Bible, our God is faithful And he is worthy to be praised. Amen? Let's look at the next part of verse 27. There is none else. What does that mean? Pretty simply, God alone is holy and sovereign. But it's so profound, right? This was relevant to Joel's original audience because different sources tell us that there were some practices going on among the people, such as idolatry, and pluralism, which just means they were worshiping more than one God. And of course, this is relevant to us today too, right? God is jealous for his people and their worship. Only God can save and satisfy us, and only he deserves our devotion. So don't choose a substitute over the abundant, restoring God, Yahweh. I think this is a good place for me to give you a Question for reflection and application about this phrase, there is none else. Are there any areas of your life that you are choosing something else in place of God? I would challenge you to ask him to convict you of any aspects of your life, maybe time, priorities, your trust, that are more dedicated to something else. Write it down put it on paper, or ask a sister in Christ to help keep you accountable to identifying what that else is and turning it over to God. We are still in verse 27. And the last sentence we see repeated twice, which should definitely grab our attention. In the end of verse 26, and again in verse 27, and my people shall never again be put to shame. We talked a little bit about the shame and disappointment that God promises to take away earlier in the chapter. For a while, I struggled with understanding the significance of this sentence here. God kept bringing me back to it. And finally, I felt an answer to all of the times that I asked, why is it there twice? Why is it so important that he promises to remove their shame that it's literally spelled out twice in black and white? What is the purpose? Why does God do anything that he does in this book of prophecy? Why does he have mercy on the Israelites and on us when we sin again and again? If you don't remember anything else that I say today, hear this. The answer to the why is for God's glory. There's a cross-reference to Ezekiel 36 verse 22, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. God doesn't do these things just for our comfort or because he needs us in his plan, but it's so that he can demonstrate his grace through us so that we can glorify his name. We know him and his presence, so we will proclaim his glory to the rest of the world. This is good news, and we should not keep it to ourselves. Amen? Jesus said in Matthew when he was asked by some critics about what is the most important commandment, he said, The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ladies, if you love your neighbor, share with them this good news of how they can know God and his presence. That is the why of our lives. It's the why of this book and really all of God's word. When we repent, the Lord Yahweh restores and dwells in relationship with us so that God will be glorified. Here's another reflection and application question for you. What does it mean to proclaim God's glory in your day-to-day life? What are some practical ways that you can do this? Ask God to show you opportunities to share his story with those around you. We're now in the last section, Joel 2, 28 through 32. We've talked about how God gives us overflowing abundance in relationship with him, but wait. There's more. I'll read it. Verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So your Bible may have a note that in the original Hebrew, chapter 3 would have started with what is chapter 2, verse 28 here. So at first, this chunk can feel disconnected from the previous section, and I was tempted to pass that right on off to Natalie so she could cover all of the Day of the Lord content. But the more I studied, the more the Holy Spirit showed me that these verses do flow out of the previous section and flows right into the next chapter about the final days. First, God promises the pouring out of the Spirit. When is this happening? The afterward gives us a bit of a clue, but is also confusing. Is this when Jesus came to earth? Is this going to happen when he comes again in the, old, in the end times? And my answer to that is yes, both. Now, I don't promise to have 100% perfect answers on the interpretation for some of these possibly controversial topics in the end of this chapter. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't study the text anyway. I would encourage you to listen to what I've learned through my time with God and with input from others, and then go study it for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. 
Ask God to help you understand it, just as you should with any teaching. If you run into any further questions or anything you want to um, talk through with me, feel free to contact me. So when shall it come to pass? It's appropriate to think about prophecy as having a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. You may have heard of the phrase, already, not yet. This is similar, but a little different from the gospel, already, not yet. The phrase, in those days, in verse 29, uh, seems to refer to the end times, because we've got these signs and wonders, the blood, the fire, all these words. But... We know that in the New Testament, the phrase the last days or the end of the ages is used to describe the time period between when the Messiah comes to earth and when he returns again. For example, in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, we see long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So don't let in those days make you think this isn't for you and I, because we are living in those days and the end is at hand. So we talked about when this occurs, what or who exactly is this spirit that will be poured out in verse 28. This is the Holy Spirit, which could be covered in a whole weekend conference by itself right here, but I want to cover it a little bit anyway. Whether this is a review for you or if it's something that you've never fully understood or heard of at all. The Holy Spirit is one being of the Trinity, which is the miraculous way that God exists in three beings. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all fully God, and the Holy Spirit is one aspect that was promised to us that he would come after Jesus left the earth. Turn to John 14, verse 15, and put a sticky note there for you to come back to later to read this whole section. This is where Jesus taught a lot about the Holy Spirit. And he said, starting in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. How amazing that we are sent a guide to help us understand the truth who will dwell inside us. In the words of Laura Swain, God has a history of pursuing us and drawing closer and closer to us. Think about it this way. God sent his son to mankind on earth in the flesh. And then when we believe and choose to follow him, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside each of us. The prophecy of God pouring out his spirit in Joel was directly referenced in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. So if you'll turn there to Acts 2, starting in verse 1, to put a sticky note for later, I'll give you the background. There were 120 believers present, including men and women, who were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, one of the traditional Jewish festivals. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a mighty rushing wind, 
And it says in verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues. Now, some of the crowd that had gathered mocked the people, saying they must be drunk with wine. And this is where Peter quotes Joel in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, the pouring out of the Spirit. So does this mean that the pouring out of the Spirit was only for the 120 people in the room on that day in Acts 2? No, of course not. This was one example of a fulfillment of the prophecy. And like we talked about, we have near-term fulfillments and we'll also have a future ultimate fulfillment to come. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit only came to particular people for a particular purpose for a particular period of time, like little drops of water, if you will, going back to our dryness and water analogy. Look again at the word Joel uses here in verse 28. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Under the new covenant, after Jesus' death and resurrection, praise God, the Holy Spirit will come to fill all believers forever. Not just a few drops on the top, but a filling that will stay eternally. We should also notice here that the promise extends specifically to any gender, any age, and any social class of people, which would have been mind-blowing to the reader at that time. This was also seen in Acts 2, because we are specifically told there were women in the room who were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for us today, ladies? I think our current church culture and structure sometimes make people feel as though only pastors or leaders have a special knowledge or some sort of special access to God. Now, I don't mean to downplay in any way the important biblical roles of pastors, teachers, and elders, and I am so thankful for the many godly church leaders in my life that I've um, encountered along the way in the different places that I've lived. But this tells us that everyone can receive the Holy Spirit and his power in Acts in order to be witnesses to the end of the earth, it says in Acts 1 verse 8. So I would challenge you to think about if you follow Jesus and believe that God's word is true and believe that the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have access to the Holy Spirit and his understanding of the scriptures that he reveals to you. So I would just encourage you to think about whether there is something God may want you to do, whether that's studying or teaching his word to others or anything else that God may want you to do through his power as you believe that he empowers you with the spirit. When we repent, the Lord Yahweh restores and dwells in relationship with us so that God will be glorified. Point number two in this section is that God promises salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. We're in verse 32. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's important to remember that calls on the name of the Lord does not mean someone who just recognizes God, because even the demons believe who he is, right? This means those who follow and live in submission to God. So this whole 
wording of the Lord calls or those who call on the Lord can bring up a lot of questions. And I firmly believe that there are some aspects of God that we cannot fully comprehend as humans. However you interpret this potentially tricky subject, sometimes referred to as election or predestination, it does not change God's instruction for us to love our neighbor and spread the gospel to everyone. This idea is referenced by Paul in Romans chapter 10. Really, if you just put a post-it there and read all of Romans 10 and 11, if you have any questions or need further study on this topic, Paul quotes in chapter 10, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him if they haven't believed? And how will they believe if they haven't heard of him? I'm paraphrasing there. So it seems to me that the important part for us to remember from this is not the technicality of who is called, but that we are to go to preach so that everyone can hear about the gospel of God, the gospel, the good news of how God made a way to redeem us to relationship with him. So I'll read it one more time. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is this phrase, the survivors and those who escape, talking about? We know from cross-references that it's referring to the remnant of Israel preserved by God. So even though there were many, many Israelites, only a remnant or part of them will return and follow the Lord. But we see prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 8 through 14, and I'll read um, sections from this that tell us God will bring them back and gather them from the ends of the earth. With pleas for mercy, he will lead them back. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. So to summarize this section, God promises his Holy Spirit and salvation for all who call on him. So, this tiny book of Joel covers some huge concepts. We've gone from locusts to abundant blessings. We've seen perfect justice and perfect mercy. The Almighty God doesn't need us, but he wants to live in intimate relationship with us. He designed it this way on purpose because he is Yahweh, the covenant God and in order to display his abounding mercy and grace through us. How can we begin to respond to this wonderful story with our words and with our lives? The only way I can think of is to commune with him, praise him with our words and with our lives, not for our sake, but for the glory of his name. I'll end with Psalm 116, verses 12 through 19. 
What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. God, thank you for your word and your truth and that the things you have for us to know about you were the same things a year ago when I studied through the past year today when I'm recording, and months from now when people will listen to my words. Thank you for your word and your sovereign plan to redeem us, to commune with us, and to have us be part of your plan to tell the world about you, God. Help us to proclaim your name in the way things that we speak and in the way that we live to everyone around us, God. Thank you for empowering us to do that. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So the two questions for reflection and application that I mentioned earlier are number one, what does it mean to proclaim God's glory? What are some practical ways that you can do this in your day-to-day life? Pray and ask God to show you opportunities to share his story with those who are around you. And the second one is, in Joel 2.27, God says that he, is, he alone is God and there is none else. Are there any areas of your life that you choose or dedicate yourself to something else more than to God. Ask him to convict you of any aspects of your time, your priorities, your trust that are more dedicated to something else. Write it down on paper and consider asking a trusted friend to help keep you accountable. To submit that to God and ask him to draw him to you 